You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Rajiv. It's Madumba. That's correct. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Rajiv. Sure. First of all, uh, thanks for having me on this. Happy to be here. So I'm Rajiv Madumba. I've been an executive and an entrepreneur for the last 20 plus years. Um, I'm from India. I've been in the U.S. since 2000. I've had my own share of uh, successes and failures, and I recently started my own podcast. It's called Plan B Success. It's about a month and a half old at this point, where I discuss, uh, it's a three-episode podcast where I discuss topics, generally original topics with organic content that I create, uh, two episodes of those, and one of them is an, is an interview with uh, an entrepreneur or any inspiring personality that I bring on board. So that's something that I've been doing. Um, Other than that, I've published a book recently about uh, two months ago, which is a collection of quotes uh, that I have collected over the last five to six years, basically from my own experiences. So it was one way of uh, immortalizing my experiences, and it turned into a pretty large piece of work, about 650 plus quotes that I just put together in the form of a book. So that's um, that's about me. How did you get into the process of being an entrepreneur? You know, for me, it actually began very early when I was in my teens. I, you know, I've always been intrigued with businessmen and businesses and such. So there was a time, point in time uh, during my childhood that there's this festival in India. It's called Diwali. It's the Festival of Lights where you end up uh, burning a lot of crackers. So I had friends who actually made crackers in their backyard, and I used to help them out. And one of them used to put up a store. And I would be there two weeks before the festival in the store helping him out. And every year, we pretty much sold out everything. We pretty much emptied the store before we went out and enjoyed the festival by ourselves. And that was a pretty exciting experience just being in the store and selling crackers to different people. And that's where the first uh, now, aspect of sales came about. Here's yep. my, here's my dumb question. What kind of crackers were you selling? Were you selling the Ritz or were you selling like the, like the square kind, which one? Oh no, 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 the firecrackers basically. So I mean the fireworks? The Ju- yeah. The July 4th stuff oh you're saying crackers i'm sitting here thinking you're talking about like the the ritz crackers i use in my chicken no, no. Noodle soup or something oh i'm about to say that firecracker <laughs> you did not want to put in the chicken noodle soup yeah so you were selling fireworks fireworks yeah they're, they're called fireworks here they used to be called or they're still called firecrackers back there so yeah that's what we used to do and uh, that was my first uh introduction with sales um and i really enjoyed it then I went on to do an MBA in India, and then right out of uh, school, actually in my second year MBA, I worked with a Canadian-based company that had come over to India, and that was in direct sales, basically selling all kinds of toys, kitchenware, 
consumer durables door to door. So I learned the process with them. I went door to door for about a year and a half. And that was probably the foundation for my entire career. It was not easy. It was tough, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. Ended up building a team and ended up opening one of my own locations and then continuing the tradition. So basically, it was like a franchisee office that you would get. You could pick a location and build it from there. I did that with them for a while. You know, then eventually I started thinking about, okay, if I can do it with them. Initially, it was all imported goods so it it felt great but then very soon they started sourcing stuff in in india locally and once they started doing that then i was like okay i could do this myself and then i separated from them and i started my own company i struggled initially but went on to build 12 locations 300 odd employees that were going door to door did really well and that was a time when Technology came into India, so and, you know I was from one of those generations where I got out of school before technology really hit, and I, I had to learn technology. The best way was to get into a technology business. Well, in and, my eyes, and, at least in my eyes, you're you just missing the cusp of technology when you were a kid was probably the best thing for you because if you had a device like we do now, like kids have today, you probably. Uh-huh you probably wouldn't have aspired to be the business guy you turned out to be today. I mean, a, a lot of that, like, especially being in the marketing industry, you have to have a type of drive to be able to sell a product, but at the same time, be able to market it correctly. And what techniques I would say, have you found that can help you be, be the marketer you really became today and the entrepreneur you, you have been today? Because you can be aggressive in the way that you style things, the way you try and sell stuff. You know, you can kind of shove it in their face and make them kind of convince them to get it. You know, like the car salesman. It's mm-hmm. like, this car is, uh, it's two ninety nine, hundred thousand right now, but guess what? We're going to knock it down $1 just for you. And the guy's like, I'll take it. Like, you know what I mean? Or right, right. you could do a type of passive... Uh, type of form where you're just like, hey, man, if you want it, it's there. And then that might get some people too. But it seems like the more when it comes to the marketing line, they're more trying to shovel it in your face and kind of attack you a little bit more aggressively. Those are the ones that seem to prosper in the business field. You know, what seemed to have worked for me basically goes back to what I learned out in the field. But you're right. So, you know, definitely that sense of urgency that you're going to miss out, that definitely works as uh, in sales. You know, we see that every single day. But, you know, in the face is not what I like. You know, as a customer, I wouldn't like that. And I'm sure others are out there that wouldn't like it either. But what I stuck with and what I, what I still continue to stick with is something called the law of averages, which is if you go and knock 100 doors, if you go and talk to about 100 people, about 30% will buy. But you just have to have the patience to keep doing what you're doing until you get there. So it's not that you know you start talking to people and the first 30 are going to buy. You might not get your first 30 until you're at the end of your 100, like that. You know, So give or take, about 30% will always buy. All you got to do is persevere, keep going on and on and on. And you you got to limit how much time you're doing your selling. So you go there. For me, it was basically a two to three minute gig. You know, when you're selling consumer durables, toys, and gifts, 
you give them the fear of loss you know obviously it's limited quantity you don't buy now if you don't if you don't buy now it's gone there's a new product in the market two days from now and then you know it's also about it might cost x amount in the stores we're giving it a discounted right here at your door but at the same time it's basically going through the steps of saying here's a deal take it or leave it and give the customer time to react and once they have reacted positive or negative you move on you know you don't just keep convincing the same person so a lot of times that is to aggressive tactics they try and mm-hmm. hit on the aspect that a lot of people are more likely to be pushed over um just when it comes to something getting shoveled in their face like i don't know if i really want that like a lot of people nowadays are very indecisive they don't know exactly what they want they don't know really what they they have an idea but they don't know the final product of what they want and right that that gives the salesman an advantage because then you can kind of convince them like well, you know, this is good for that. And they're like, well, I only need, like, I only came in for toilet paper. Well, this works just like toilet paper. It's very versatile. And then, like, next thing you know, you come home and you're like, I just bought a dog. I don't understand how this is anything like toilet paper. And you end up feeling like you got tricked a little bit. And that's only from the aspect of people are more likely just to buy, just to not deal with the problem anymore, just to be like, okay, okay, okay. Okay, let's let's just get this out of the way. What, what are you selling? All right, here's here's fifty bucks. You know, the worst salesman I have ever seen, and they make they guilt the shit out of you is those Girl Scouts that sell cookies when you're walking out of the store. <laughs> you know that's true though, because they make you. They don't say anything to you on your way in, but on their way out. Mm-hmm. That's when they hit you, right? As soon as you're putting away your wallet and everything like that. They're like, "Would you like to donate to our cause?" I'm like, "Uh, okay." Um. How much? Well, for this box of Thin Mints and these little uh, uh, snickerdoodles, it's going to be fifty-two seventy-three. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. I no, I'm not doing that. And like, but it's going to help us go to summer camp. I'm like, no, it's not. They're going to give you a dollar of that profit. You're not going to get anything. You're not going to summer camp unless you trick five hundred thousand other individuals like me. But shut up and take my money and give me those Thin Mints. Yeah, we still buy, right? So, exactly. yeah, I buy. I, I, you know, I like Samoas, for instance. You know, Samoas are something that I buy all the time, They're every delicious, year. You know, man. yeah. So some sometimes a product is good. So you know, that's that's why you go after. And then you know, in some cases, like you said, we live in communities. You know, obviously, internet has opened the world to us, but we live in communities, and then you want the same people to buy from you again. And I've been in several situations where I've tried to sell something. They may not have bought it at that point in time, but they bought something else at a later point, and they always come back and ask you about that last product that you sold, which is gone now. So, so a lot of time, it, it's also relations. I think today, especially in today's time, there's a lot of emphasis on relationship building. You know, the more you build, the less you have to sell. Yeah, well, when you're dealing in the field of marketing, I think the best way is be able to connect with people. Like sensing a real, what's, what's really good about a salesperson is their voice, their vocalization, able to communicate with their words, you know, not be able to force you, make you kind of feel like you have to buy like a Jehovah's Witness trying to sell a bunch of Bibles onto your doorstep. But the whole mm-hmm. aspect, like they could sit there and talk to you. Like I've seen so many movies that have had salesmen and all these types of things in them. And like they had that one uh, saying, you know, he could sell uh, ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. That's basically the aspect of it. You want to have a way to make people buy your product, but not feel like they're being kind of guilted into it. 
you know, a lot of like with the SPCA and all those kids where you got to donate money to Africa and all this stuff, they really attack you on the guilt aspect. They attack you from the human side. I say mm-hmm. for, for a commercial like that to be productive, the best thing you can possibly do is to try and just talk to people, just find a way to connect, not show them a bunch of depressing things to the point where they're going to be like, feel like they're guilted into paying. Because you find that when people are just talked to at a level playing field and just like, hey, you know, there's going to be people that want to buy your product. So don't waste time on the people that don't want to buy your product. So the best, the best way is you want to have a target audience. Am I correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, two things come to mind. One is when you talk about the Jehovah's Witness, you know, I've come across them several times. Once as a student, when I was a new student in the U.S., and they, one fine Sunday morning, they came knocking. It's it's tough, you know. They just won't give up. They, they Once the doors open, they got to get their foot in the door, and, and they have to say what they have to say. I've been in those situations, and then I've been in situations where I've had these people show up and then we get into a discussion about, you know, spirituality in general, you know, the Hinduism, for instance, or Buddhism, and then Christianity. And some of them welcome that. Some of them love the dialogue, love the discussion. And at a later point in time, you end up exchanging your books, you know, whatever they have to give you the Bible versus if you have something to give them, that's great. But in some cases, it's like, it's my way or the highway. And, you know, and that's where the problem comes. Yeah, I, 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 I thought I wanted to do sales for so long, only on the fact that I was really good at kind of talking to people and being able to read people a little bit. But it was just, it seemed like the way it was going with technology and the way it was going with how I always saw business people selling things and someone ends up buying it. And then next thing you know, like, they end up going down in a little bit of a hole because what they bought is really not what they needed. They just kind of got convinced. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times it's just being able to sway the sway your product in the person's direction. You know, most people are all kind of, like I said, indecisive anyway. So they're kind of questioning on, do I really need that? Nobody really truly thinks about it. I mean, Amazon does that to me on a daily basis. It'll be two o'clock in the morning. I'll be on my phone and I'm like looking at bidets for my toilet. Like I don't need a bidet for my toilet, but it would be nice to have one. And it's like, it's, it's the whole idea. Like when you're mindlessly shopping, you start buying stuff. Like that's why it's best to create a list when you go into a grocery store. You know, you're right. It, it it makes it difficult with so many things that catches our eye in a type of marketing, whether it's advertisements and all these types of sorts. It really creates pressure as a buyer, and that gives a salesperson great benefit in being able to sell their product. But it's hard to kind of keep your numbers up high, but also still care about the people. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it goes back to the sales tactics and the marketing tactics. Again, Amazon's just made it so convenient either to buy something or even to return something. So uh, the first part that comes to mind from a convenience standpoint is that every time my daughter brings up something and she says, hey, I need this, uh, for instance, packing tape, you know, and I'm like, OK, let's go on Amazon and order it. It's going to be there tomorrow. You know, sometimes she likes it. Sometimes she likes the aspect of going into a store and shopping around. And that's where the problem is, right? Once you start shopping around, you've you got this huge cart you're lugging around. And uh, it's just not satiating 
to see it empty, you got to fill it. <laughs> so so that, that's where the problem starts. And then by the time you get to the car, you're wondering, why did I buy all this? You know, uh, what am I going to do with it? And then you just stock up. Um, so, and and it the goes best, back oh, to discipline. The best of example of that is when this I saw this movie with a car salesman sold a Ferrari to a grandfather. And he's like, but where am I going to put my grandkids, man? Like, I can't, they can't sit here. He goes, that's the best part. You see this? And he pushes over to the passenger seat. And he goes, back here, it's a little secret cave. And it's like under where the engine is. I'm like, oh my God. And the grandfather, next you see him drive off the lot, can't even control the car. I'm like, he just got convinced so hard. But how much pressure as a salesperson did you feel like you faced when it came to uh, at least higher ups kind of wanting you to have numbers? When I was actually out there doing direct sales, absolutely, there was pressure. Um, I had to try and get to that 30. Some days it happened, some days it did not. Then as a team, we had to do about 1,500 you know, pieces in sales in a week. Um, that took, that's, that's where the time happened, you know, which is, you know, you train people, you get them to perfect their craft, you build the right number of people, and then you try to get to that number. And by the time you try to get to that number, it's several months before you hit it. And then you got to consistently hit it for a certain period of time before you are announced as a manager and get your own location. So that, that was the process at that time. So there was definitely push but you know for again the law of averages comes into play when you have about 50 60 people operating from one location about a third of them don't do well but the rest of them about a third you know do average but then there's a third that do really well so it always made up from that standpoint in terms of the numbers each week when did you start to see that you actually had a kind of niche for this type of marketing you know, this this was something new at that point in India, absolutely new. And, you know, for me, it was basically trying to get some experience. I did not walk in there saying I want to do sales. I just walked in there saying, hey, there's this company, they're doing something new, totally unheard of. Let's see what they have to teach us. And that, that's how I, I got in there. But, yeah, but the funny thing is my entire career is not sales. You know, that's where I started. Then I got into technology. Then in technology, I ended up building an exports division for a firm in India. First time that they sent their consulting services overseas. And then I came over to the U.S. I did another MBA and then I got into healthcare. And I've been in healthcare, benefits administration, benefits consulting and healthcare for the last 18 plus years. And I've done a round robin of all, all kinds of things, client management, relationship management, up sales, operations product development, technology management, everything. And so, that was, that was, yeah. What about healthcare are you working on now or what have you started in healthcare? So healthcare, my journey has, my journey actually started with uh, benefits administration. So basically health and welfare, active benefits administration. I actually started at, at the point where I was trying to understand what is insurance? You know, what, what is health insurance? What's an HMO? What's a PPO? that kind of stuff. And then, you know, obviously I built myself over time. I started on the back end of things. I was a hands-on business analyst. Then I climbed the ladder over the years to become an executive. And I shaped my career in such a way that, you know, I started off with a large firm. 
then i went into mid sized firms then i went into startups and over over and then i said okay benefits administration is kind of limited i got to expand my view then i got into wellness then actual healthcare delivery disease management care management and such then i got into mm. during the aca time frame i got into building exchanges building single carrier exchanges for different government entities like different states then i built a multi product multi carrier benefits exchange for the commercial side both for individuals as well as businesses that's how i kind of expanded my horizons in terms of not just the the healthcare aspect of it but also getting my feel for large companies mid-size and smaller companies i've i've seen companies through a few acquisitions few sales and then also expanding my footprint from just being a technology guy on the back end to being the face of the company in front of clients being the operational head owning P&L leadership and such. Did you find that there was a little bit of kind of trickery or kind of a little bit of corruption in the healthcare market just when it came to selling insurance? It seemed like a little bit less consideration for the people is not taken into account. Yeah, when you look at insurance, right? look at look at any insurance for that matter, auto, home, or health for that matter, right? Most of these insurances are nice to have and good to have from a security standpoint, but you don't want to use them. That, that's how these insurances are built. Have them, but as far as possible, don't use them. Uh, that, that's that's the part. And when you look at healthcare specifically, we started with the HMOs where everything was paid for and you were like, okay, great, nothing out of pocket. I pay my premium, I'm good to go. And and when I, I actually see this, I, I you know, on the West, we are at a point where we are, it's like a, it's like a circle. You know, I look at what's happening on the East. When I say East, I'm talking about India and the countries there. I look at healthcare there. I look at healthcare here. And there's the, it, whatever's happened here is getting started there. Whatever happened there is getting started here. And what I mean by that is here, during the HMO phase, you never saw, you never felt a pinch because you it was not money out of pocket. All you had to do was pay the premiums and you go into the doctor's office you never cared about what did they bill, how much does the service cost, nobody asked. Then as the premium started rising, then all these other plans came about saying, hey, you are going to, you as the holder of this insurance are going to bear part of the cost when it comes to co-insurance, co-pays, deductibles, all of this stuff. And when that started pinching, that's when people started asking the question, okay, how much is this, does this service really cost? How much does this cost in this community versus that community, this state versus that state? And now we are at a point where we are saying, okay, we need to be more transparent about all these different costs so that as an educated consumer, you can make choices as to where you want to go and get your services. Now, when you look at the East, it's totally different. They're in the HMO phase right now. They're like, you know, hey, I've got this insurance. I can go to the doctor any number of times. I don't care about how much it's costing. Somebody else is taking care of it. That's what I mean by the circle. I talk to so many doctors, pharmacists, all these different types of people in different states and different countries, and they always bring up the same fact that it seems like the medical industry is a little bit lost its uh, in, initial intentions when it comes to caring for the people. It seems like they're now more trying to just put a Band-Aid over a problem that needs to be worked on more than just a Band-Aid. Uh, it's difficult yeah. when it comes to 
healthcare, when it comes to any type of insurance, because you want to hope to God you never have to use it, but you want that safety net there. It is definitely a big benefit having medical insurance, having these types of things for one of See, nobody wants to pay for it because they don't ever think they're going to use it. And then when it happens mm-hmm. and they're in dire need, they end up getting screwed over with the bill. But the problem is a lot of what goes into selling those types of insurance, at least in the modern like day today, it's a lot of kind of corruption. There's not really a whole lot of care when it comes to the whole healthcare industry. It might have care in the name, but it's definitely not careful. It it does a lot of things when it comes to just trying to get as much money as possible because they look at it like you're just another person out of the billions that are living here, which makes it yeah, very, very hard for someone to market like yourself to be able to kind of sell off insurance, especially people are kind of looking at you like, I know we need it, but at the same time, I don't have a lot of money to go out for the best insurance. I can get the side insurance. Right. And, and you know, there, there's several things to it, right? Several things contributing to it. It's kind of just grown so much as a business. It's considered a business. And to your point, you're absolutely right. We are all about sick care. You know, it's about caring for the sick. It's not really well care. We're not, we're not looking at making people well and keeping them well. Because if they keep, if they keep well, who's going to fall sick and how's that wheel going to turn? You know, that's one, one issue. The second thing is when you look at other countries, you look at uh, other countries with single health plans. Are, are different kinds of setups than the U.S. You look at Europe, for instance, you know, although our Canada, for instance, or France, you know, although we might say that, hey, they've got this socialistic approach to healthcare. There's a lot of weight. If you have a situation, you've got to wait here. You can walk into any doctor's office. You know, that, that's, that's the most common point that I hear when somebody wants to debate healthcare in these other countries. But then you have people, you have doctors in, in England who are paid handsomely, but not atrociously. Here, you look at doctors here in the U.S., majority of it goes in paying doctors and hospital systems. And then this whole mal, um, you know, medical malpractice insurance stuff, how they got to keep themselves covered in case something goes wrong. A bulk of it is administrative cost. A bulk of our cost is around paying the people that service healthcare. And as long as we can do something about it, it can fall drastically. Costs can fall drastically, and and when I talk about India, I see the same thing. You know, you could you could have somebody. Uh, you know, I'll give you my own example. I remember when my, I think it was my son when he was born. You know, I I ended up paying about five hundred. I think in, you know, whatever that upfront payment I paid the uh, the doctor or the hospital, and I didn't have to pay anything. But I looked at the actual bill. It was a twenty six grand bill. 26 grand is a lot of money. And then I, uh, when I went, uh, when my daughter was born, which was five years later, I'm talking about you know, my son was 2003, my daughter was 2008. And at that time, it was a PPO that I had. And I didn't have the best of PPOs. Uh, so as a result, you know, I, I absolutely paid more attention to the bill. Again, it was a large bill. It was, it was to a similar kind of a tune. But then I actually sat there. How many people are going to do that? You know, I understand healthcare, I'll do that. But how many people are going to do that? I sat there, I went line item by line item. I questioned every line item. And then I got them to bring it down to about 13 grand. And once they brought it down to 13 grand, then my insurance applied on it. And then, you know, obviously the amount was a little lower that I paid. But just sitting with the 
hospital folks and working line item by line item, got it down to 13 grand. One of the things was, you know, when they move uh, the mom from, you know, the preparation room to the operation theater, then they have this other room where they have a computer where the nurse sits and does some documentation. So she has the patient beside her before they move the patient into their actual own room. And every time any of these rooms is touched, there's a payment. The, the, the clock starts ticking. It's a, it's a by-minute kind of a payment. And I, one of my questions to the, to the hospital was that, you know, if the, if the nurse had to go and type something, why didn't she take the patient from the operating theater straight to her recuperating room instead of having her right next to her in that room? And why is there a charge for that? You know, I contested that and they took it away when I started yeah, contesting things. They were probably things. freaking out, man. They were probably like, this guy knows some stuff. Like, we can't just, you know, they expected you probably just to pay it as soon as they gave you the bill. Yeah. Yeah. See, I questioned everything. And, you know, even today, for instance, I look at where, when I need to take any of my kids to a doctor, I look at which office are they calling me. If that office is within a hospital building, I'm not walking in because, you know what? They double charge you. The doctor has one charge, and then the hospital has another charge because just because their office is located in that building. I've seen this multiple times. And one of the other things is anesthesiologists. They always have an out-of-network anesthesiologist come for an operation. They never have them in network. So as a result, they charge a lot more for that anesthesiologist. You know, people don't know these kinds of things. The one time, or, you know, I took. Well, the one time I went to the doctor for something serious, it was like. They kept bouncing me from room to room to room and getting all these doctors on this one thing. And when I got the bill, I was like, there's no way in hell. Like, it's mm -hmm. not happening. It was too outrageous to the point where well, I ended up getting blood taken to try and figure out like a bunch of stuff. And then they took 17 vials of my blood at John Hopkins. They lost every mm -hmm. single vial. Every single one. You took it 17. To, how do you lose 17 vials? So then I got a letter right. in the mail from a lawyer telling me that I could sue for mispractice. I was like, what? And a John Hopkins never sent me a bill. They never sent me anything. I didn't have to pay anything back. I didn't deal with it at all. I just totally forgot about it. And I'm like, I, right. that's what scares me about the medical industry. The whole aspect of, I know it's, we look at doctors with, with a lab coat and expect them to be honorable and expect them to be like this. I'm like, no, they're people. That guy could be like that, but you know, he's also a person that has intentions, has a drive for what he's doing. He's here for money. You know what I mean? It's, right. You got to remember that. And a lot of people don't keep that in their mind. They think he's a doctor. He's going to do his job. No, he's just here to get paid sometimes. Right. Right. And then, you know, I think a lot of it also has to do with the disconnectedness. You know, they're trying to solve that problem now in terms of connecting healthcare end-to-end, -end, but there's disconnectedness. I remember I took my son when he was a toddler for a general checkup, right? Your annual checkup every year. And then at the end of it, they give you one of those bottles where he needs to pee into it. He just didn't feel like doing it. And then they said, okay, why don't you take the bottle home? And if, if and when he pees, you can bring it back. I never took it back. Then the bill shows up. There's a $9 charge for a urine test. And I'm like, okay, what did the test say? Well, they have nothing to say. So, you know, then what I hear from the doctor is, oh, we bundle it up. Annual checkup is annual checkup. We bundle it up. We send it to the insurance people. They just pay for it. I'm like, that's just not right because you know what? You never did the test. Yeah. So there are, there are lots of gaps and lots of issues there. Uh, and, and the other thing is the disconnectedness is just killing us. Like if you decide to go to urgent care, 
how do you make sure that you know those health records go back to your whoever your family physician is? Yep, exactly. Who's responsible Actually, for that? One of my buddies, yeah. um, he got his bachelor's in emergency uh, in the nursing program to deal with like emergency situations, doing the EMT care and all that. And he was in, he talks about being in the emergency room, and he goes, these doctors, they. It, they don't have connection to their patients anymore because they literally can't. They have nine to 10 patients when they should be only having six or seven. And now it's like, I asked him, I was like, is it true you guys work like 48 hour shifts and you guys can't even like, you, you try and sleep for a minute and they call you? He goes, dude, he goes, people just clock in and the only time they can clock out when their shift is over is when everybody's in stable condition. Now doctors are literally just hitting that requirement of just having everybody in stable condition and then leaving and going home. Nobody's sitting there taking the time to care anymore. Nobody's doing anything of these sorts. And it really causes traumatic stress on people because if you don't have a personal doctor relationship, a guy comes in, he sees a chart. This is what the nurse's job is, is to make sure you're not allergic to anything, make sure she gets to know you a little bit. And then the doctor just comes in and goes, all right, you're not allergic to anything? Okay, I'm going to give you this. Next thing you know, like a question wasn't asked and boom, that person has an allergic reaction to something medical and then they're in a coma. And the next thing you know, that leads from one thing to another. There's a big connection, not only in the world with people today where we have to start talking to one another, but the fact that doctors need to have the biggest connection to people at all. You need to sit down and talk to them. You need to sit down. There needs to be that conversation for at least an hour of just trying to understand like, hey, where are you from? Okay, what do you do? What's your family like? You know, get this stuff going. They're not your therapist, but they have a tremendous amount of pressure put on top of their heads that they can't, they can't, they can't make that a requirement. They can't do that. They can't even live up to those requirements. It's, it makes it impossible for them. I got that. So, you know, today there's a lot of impetus on technology and how technology can play a role in bringing the providers, the you know, the doctors and and such, and the consumers, the patients together. You know, they, uh, nowadays we call them consumers, right? So, consumers of healthcare, just like anybody else. And there's there's this member centric approach. There's tons of technology that's get getting built around it. You know, all of that is great. But, I, you know, honestly, I feel that there's got to be more done to your point around empathy and around treating people like people and not just another number around providing them the services by more by listening to them, but not just by administration of services. Most of the times when I go to a doctor, I feel like I'm the one who's talking about the symptoms. I'm the one who's trying to deduce what the situation is, and I'm the one who's also trying to give them hints about what kind of, a, you know, what, what do they need to do in order to get me on the path of wellness, which is sad, but, uh, you know, with the amount of influx of information that's thrown at us, people are getting smarter about their own health, but then that, that empathy factor, the factor of treating people like actual people, that'll go a long way with or without technology. Technology can help just because it's there's so many people to be taken care of. And there are things, telehealth, for instance. Telehealth has been done doing tremendously over the last three to five years now. And I think it's a boon because, you know, it just impacts the reach of the providers as far as they can go. It also helps with 
some some amount of self-service that members can have for themselves and convenience. All of those things are great, but the empathy factor is a big one. And uh, there's nothing else. There's no technology to displace that. Yeah, and it's something that people are losing nowadays. It seems like people are holding less empathy for one another. That's why I first even started my podcast was I started to realize everybody's becoming so disconnected. Kind of scared me a little bit. And if you had any advice for people out there that are trying to at least navigate something as dangerous as the healthcare industry, what would you say to them? Just be more educated and try and do a little bit of research themselves and understand the whole rules of healthcare first before you go into it? Yeah, I think education definitely helps a lot. It's it's a complex field. It's not that easy to understand. I get that, you know, having been in the field for so long, there are things that I need. I spend a lot of time on just understanding myself too, too right? But for, for a common person, this is one field where we leave, you know, uh, for for more or less, we leave our hand, our life in the hands of medical personal doctors. We totally, totally trust them, which is great. And that's how it should be. But to self-educate, to understand, to learn, not just uh, about diseases or symptoms and those kinds of things, but also how does healthcare really operate? Like how many people out there understand what's a coinsurance versus a copay versus a deductible? Those are important things to understand. Just because you signed up for a health insurance and you pay a premium to forget about everything else, I think it just doesn't help. You need to understand what you're signing up for. If, God forbid, you're hit by something big, how does that impact your finances? How does that impact the plan that you're on? Did you choose the right plan when you had the chance? All of those things are pretty important because, you know, the the health aspect is one thing, but it can be financially devastating for people if at all they're in a situation where they need to really amp up how much healthcare they're consuming. It's not even financially uh, detriment to yourself. It's literally physically and, and emotionally just exhausting. You, you got to learn all these processes and all these rules. And there's so many loopholes and all these types of things you have to try and navigate. It makes it hard just to be able to make sure that if you get into an accident, you're going to be okay. Someone's going to help you. Right. And then, the, you know, in today's times, especially with so much of social media and the amount of influx of information we have. So all of this is one thing, but then we also need to be choosy about what kind of information are we consuming on the internet, right? Today, if you had some symptoms, you could Google it up and it'll give you some information about what you're down with or what kind of medication you, you should take. Doesn't mean that you should just go with it, but it's good to be educated. It's good to understand what those symptoms are and what does it feel like so that you can have an intelligent conversation with your doctor. At the same time, we need to be able to, there's, there's a lot of awakening and awareness around, you know, health and the kind of diets that you should have, exercise. And those, all of those things are important and people need to take them seriously in order to care for their own health. Who likes being in a hospital or a doctor? We all want to avoid that as far as possible in life. And the only way to do that is to live healthy, you know, be emotionally intelligent, be happy. And those are the things that we can glean and, and learn and apply. 
Thank you so much, Rajiv, for all this information, man. This has been awesome, just being able to talk to you. At least see the human side. When a lot of people think of healthcare, they think of some robot dude that's not going to help them at all and give them any steps. And I'm, I'm really honestly inspired to kind of look at the medical industry in a new light, just on the fact that you have a sense of empathy towards people and you see that like, hey, you need to understand these things because you're also in our shoes as well. You know what I mean? A lot of people in the medical mm-hmm. industry hold themselves at higher account just on the basis of their education. And I'm like, you have to learn to connect to people on a level with treating everyone the way you would like to be treated, but with a level of respect. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's 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 something that I try to push in the work that I do, right? Especially when you're doing customer service, when you get a phone call where somebody says, hey, my insurance, I have it. I'm at the doctor's office. It's not working. That's something you got to jump onto immediately and try to see what you can do. Because guess what? You know, that's besides all the sickness and whatever they're going through in life, that's just another headache they don't want to deal with. And if you can take that away, that itself is big. Well, thank you so much, Rajiv, for being on my podcast. I want to give you here a minute at the end to be able to promote your stuff so people can find your awesome content. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. So my content is out there. My podcast, Plan B Success, is out on all the favorite platforms. It's also on YouTube. And people can just type in Plan B Success and you should have it. It's actually a combination of generic business content. I I pick topics and then I talk about them. And then I bring in one person to interview each week. It's about three episodes a week. And uh, it's, it's not very long. I don't do... Our or to our podcast, it's it's short, crisp, and the message gets across. So, I'd love people to check it out and uh, do leave a review or a rating in iTunes, and that will help immensely to share the word. The other thing is my book. It's called My Inspiration: Quotes That Shape My Self Improvement Journey. It's out there on Amazon worldwide. You can Google up. Uh, you can search it by my name, or you can search it by the book. And this is actually actual stuff that has happened with me and turned into a quote. It's not just a bunch of random quotes. And the way I like to look at it is generally, if you have a situation or a problem in life, you can pick up any book. For instance, you can pick up any spiritual book, for instance, like a Bible. And they say that you open it up and then you'll find your answer there. This is that kind of a book. This is that kind of a book. You open up any page, you can find a quote that will apply to you and your life. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rajiv, for being on. And stay tuned for another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.